podcast everything you never needed to know about movies music and theater i am your host matt and as if the opening uh uh instrumental didn't give away what we're talking about it's very very exciting it's incredibly exciting we're going to get right to it we're not going to waste too much time but first i have to say to take on such a franchise such an iconic uh um just a property and the length of time that it's existed. Um, I realized I can't do this by myself. I cannot talk about what we're gonna talk about by myself. So I had to bring in um, a fan, an expert, uh, and who better than an old friend of mine? She's a writer, she's a uh, journalist, she's an actress, she is a storyteller, she's a photographer, She and she's been on this podcast more times than I can even count at this point. Uh, you know her, you love her, uh, she's our good friend, Jacqueline Tetro. Jackie, welcome back. Hi, Matt. I am so excited for tonight and everything we have planned. Um, Thanks for having me for this. Oh, absolutely. Jack, now, if people have been keeping up with the uh, ongoing uh, discussions, um, I have been spoiling it. Um, Right now, uh, um, this is being released on May the 4th, which happens to be Star Wars Day. We're officially talking about Star Wars. This is going to be a three-part episode, a three-part episode. series that we're going to talk about star wars we're going to talk all star wars at least the 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 main uh skywalker saga we're going to talk the prequel we're going to so tonight's episode we're going to talk the prequel trilogy only so uh phantom menace attack of the clones revenge of the sith uh the next part we will talk the original trilogy so what was called Star Wars, now A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. And uh, the last we'll talk about the sequel series, trilogy, which maybe by the time we get to it, it won't be canon anymore. There's there's talk, but who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? But um, um, first of all, I want to clarify. We are not experts. We are just big, 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 big fans. I discovered Star Wars when I was 10 years old. My best friend at the time had the trilogy and he let me borrow it. And for some reason, I'd never seen them. And my dad wasn't really big into it. My mom was in. So um, I put it on and watched it myself. And I watched, now I watched 
<laughs> I watched the original, original version, the original VHS is before the special features, before the special edition. I watched the original. So in my version, Han shot first and John and um, Jabba the Hutt was not in A New Hope. So that's the version I saw. And I was in love almost immediately to the point where the next Christmas my mom was buying the Millennium Falcon and the action figures and I still have all of the action figures still presently in my in my house um, and they are ready for when my son decides he likes it. Um, since then I have enjoyed a lot most things Star Wars. Um, there's a lot of <laughs> obscure uh, Star Wars stuff that we might get to maybe in a fourth thing of like what um, what Star Wars has become in the extra stuff, but I love, love Star Wars. I also love to discuss it and dissect it as a movie because that's what I do. I'm a movie critic and I will discuss it and I will analyze it to death. Um, that is just my, what I think in terms of Star Wars. Now, Jackie, you're on this show, not just because you requested it, but because you also are as big a Star Wars fan as I am. So my first question to you is, is to you, what does Star Wars mean to you and how big of a fan of Star Wars are you? What does Star Wars mean to me? How do I begin to answer that? Um, so uh, my story is unusual because I didn't uh, quote unquote discover it until fairly later in my I don't even know if it, you can call it childhood. I was a teenager when I finally saw them. Uh, and I'd had some of the bigger plot points spoiled by, for me by pop culture references. So um, I finally got around to seeing them when my dad found like the VHS tapes at, um, at a yard sale. So we had the original trilogy on VHS. Um, and by that time, uh, so I'm the oldest of four children. Um, and it was me and my two sisters for the longest time before my brother was born. And so we didn't have like a lot of action figures of that sort in our house um, until uh, until he was alive. And then, uh, so I finally watched them. I didn't love them. I kind of, well, uh, I'll save my opinions for when we talk about the original trilogy. But um, when I fell in love with Star Wars was when the prequels were, no, not the prequels, the sequels were coming out. <laughs> yeah, I can see your expression, Matt. Um, I liked The Force Awakens, and I loved The Last Jedi. Something about the storytelling in that gripped me in a way that the others, the other installments had not. Um, so what, to answer, what does Star Wars mean to me? Um, to me, it means uh, coming of age, the hero's journey, um, finding your place, in society, in like you could say in the galaxy, in the universe. Um, uh, it's about finding your purpose and finding uh, your family, your community. And uh, <laughs> it's about all kinds of things that I like in stories. It's about uh, love and hope and redemption. Um, and it has like storytelling elements and styles that I really enjoy. Um, and those are the, the things that I enjoy, like more than the like action sequences and special effects, like I can take or leave that. I, some of the time I actually don't like it, but I when I find like characters that I love or 
certain techniques that are used, uh, that's when I really latched onto it. And like when, I don't know if I've said this before on your show, when I find something that I love, especially if it's like a, a story, um, I will go deep into it. Like I will research and I will try to like learn like the obscure origins of whatever it is and go deep into like online fandom to like learn as much as I can and to engage with it creatively myself. Um, so that's what happened. Uh, Star Wars became my obsession uh, ever since The Last Jedi came out. So that's uh, three years now in a few months. Yeah, three or four, I think. <laughs> it's changed my life, even though that's a relatively short amount of time. <laughs> uh, but it's like, it's really it had a huge impact on like the way I look at stories and like what I want from the stories that I consume and what I want to put in the stories that I tell. Yeah, um, I think, so we're going to get with the, each trilogy, I think we're going to end up talking about it in a very, very interesting way. I am totally original trilogy, original meaning New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. I love those movies. I love them, love, love, love them. And those are the first ones I ever saw. We'll talk about the the prequel trilogy in a minute. Don't worry. Um, but the sequel trilogy, I can I understand the nostalgia. I get why people like it, and I completely understand and love that the focus of the sequel trilogy was what is Ray, and it should be Ray. And I just do not care for certain things that they did to Ray. Yes. To, to, to make her, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit when we get to the sequels trilogy, but, um, but definitely I'm a huge, I, I love, I do love Star Wars. Um, there are other franchises that I love a little bit more than Star Wars, so I'm not like gung-ho Star Wars, um, but um, of the two of us sitting here, you can't see us, but one of us has not only cosplayed several times as is it just Ray you've done or just you, Ray. Okay. Um, um but she is also wearing a Padme Lake dress uh uh outfit right now. So I need to explain. I actually do not like most of Padme Amidala's wardrobe in the prequel movies. Like it's most of her clothes are just too ostentatious for my taste. Um but I do like one of her outfits and that is the lake dress in Attack of the Clones. And so Ashley Eckstein, the voice actress who was the voice of Ahsoka Tano in the Clone Wars cartoon, she established a like clothing line called Her Universe. And that is a Star Wars themed uh, brand. She recognized that there is a large uh, female presence in the Star Wars fandom that isn't always uh, paid attention to the same way that male fans are. And so uh, they have a lot of clothing and merchandise that is like geared towards women, um, just in, or like as a way of self-expression basically. Um, so yes, this dress I'm wearing is based on Padme's Lake outfit. I've only worn it once. I wore it to a friend's wedding because it's too fancy for every day, <laughs> but it's, I love the colors. Um, so, yeah, I have a special outfit planned for each of these uh, episodes, even though you can't see me. Um, I all, can see me and Matt can see me, so. Uh, it's, all, it's, it's all part of it, and maybe I'll insist at some point uh, that you, when we 
release these that you can with the link you can also post your picture too so that you can be like yeah, yeah we went, we went full in so um, i have shared pictures of me as ray online before um because i dressed up as ray on a few occasions um notably i my ray cosplay to disney world two years ago and that was a wonderful experience but i'll save that for when we talk sequels <laughs> Yeah, so we have a we have a lot to talk about. We have a lot to get through, but we're going to start at the beginning. So, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, so, the biggest thing to start with is, and the fact that we are starting, because I've been going back and forth for a long time of whether or not we start with the original trilogy and then go outwards, because that's how fans do. But... Um, if I'm not mistaken, a lot of people now are growing up watching episode one through episode eight. And I hate to think, but I think that's how my son's probably going to learn about Star Wars. So it's easy to start at the beginning. Um, but the one thing to know is that, so George Lucas began writing Star Wars in the 70s. Um, he had this grand idea and he started writing this script. And within the script, he realized he wrote like, like nine hours worth of material. And he realized he couldn't, he, he, he was probably barely, he thought he was barely going to get out of um, New Hope, never mind the, the other two, Empire and Jedi in that, in that trilogy, never mind these. And he also knew that what he imagined could not be done with the technology back in the 70s. I mean, he barely got to do what he wanted to do with New Hope. So he wrote out this backstory and said, all right, we're gonna, I, I can't afford this. So I'm gonna put it in a shelf. I'm gonna put it on a shelf, let it gather dust. And I'm gonna make this main adventure, which was Star Wars now called A New Hope. Um, it was in the eighties that he began starting to think about it as he was finishing the, um, the original trilogy, thinking about going back and doing the prequels because he felt that it expanded the story and it gave the backstory to some of the characters. Um, but he also realized at the time he had a ton of stress for, because of producing the original trilogy, he and his wife were starting to go at odds. So, which he would then, he, um, they would end up getting divorced, um, 85, I think. And he just, and, and everything wasn't working out. So he said, all right, I can't do this. I'm just going to go elsewhere. Now, how this all began was that uh, Industrial Light and Magic, which is the visual effects uh, entity that George Lucas basically owns, would, was doing a test for Steven Spielberg, basically during Jurassic Park. George Lucas saw that and realized technology had finally caught up to what he wanted to do. And so in 1992, he began to plan this prequel trilogy. And in fact, um, he was not going to originally write it. The original writer was going to be Frank Darabont. Now, if you don't know Frank Darabont, he wrote and directed Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption, uh, The Mists, uh, The Majestic, um, known as a script doctor for Spielberg for a lot of movies and wrote the original version of Kingdom of the Crystal Skull for Indiana Jones, which George Lucas hated, which was which is very ironic. Um, but he was not interested in doing it. Uh, 
the original director of Return of the Jedi was interested in, in coming back and directing the, the prequels, but he died in 82. And uh, things kept moving on and on. And finally, George Lucas said, I think I'll do it. So he began writing the actual scripts. This is confirmed. He asked three different directors to direct the sequel trilogy, the sequel, the prequel trilogy. It's going to get really confusing. Um, he asked three different directors. And Jackie, you'll be very interested in these three directors. He asked Ron Howard, Robert Zemeckis of Back to the Future fame, and Steven Spielberg to direct the, the prequels. And they all told him, no, you should direct them. Um, they found it too daunting to be able to handle it. So that's why he did. So George Lucas decided, all right, I'm going to write this. I'm going to uh, return. And it was the first movie that he has directed since Star Wars. He had not directed a movie since then. So, um, so he began planning this overarching story. Now, the story we're talking about is the fact that, oh, goodness, it begins with a trade embargo. <laughs> This is where I, I immediately get lost. The very beginning of Phantom Menace, which by the way, the, the Phantom Menace makes absolutely no sense as a title to me. It never has. And um, it's kind of ridiculous, but anyway. It, you don't really get clarity on what the title means in that movie, but I think it becomes clear by the end of the trilogy. Yeah, but it's, it's, it depends on your point of view. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Thank you, Obi-Wan. Um, but, uh, well, I mean, the prequels are about the rise and fall of Anakin Skywalker. Basically. Yeah. Like, that's the story that is told. Because we know the character, Darth Vader slash Anakin Skywalker from the original trilogy. And these were supposed to explain, I think. Or am I yeah. wrong? That was no, you're, no, you're absolutely right. The premise was all that the overarching story but whole th all three things is how does Anakin Skywalker who is told that he is the chosen one he is the one who is born to create balance within the force and essentially the Jedi believe he is meant to destroy the Sith that is the the prophecy that they speak of and the entire thing is actually about how Anakin who is so afraid to become this, a, a Sith Lord or anything essentially be, becomes the worst thing that he he's he basically becomes what he's uh, um, um, meant to not become. He goes down the different way and he allows his fear, hate, and anger to override him and he goes to the dark side. That's not a spoiler. This movie is about 10 years old at this point. So, you know. Uh, 20. <laughs> it was 1999. God, you're right. Because right. <laughs> I, I saw Revenge of the Sith in the theaters after a high school theater production as a junior because I saw it with a bunch of my other friends. So that's that's how old this thing is. <laughs> um, I was barely out of elementary school. That was the year I... No, 2005, was it, that Revenge of the Sith came out? So, yeah. Okay, so, and now you know, the, now you know uh, Jackie and my ages. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, anyway, so the overarching story is that. How did he become? And the thing is, it plays not necessarily on nostalgia, but it plays upon your um, knowledge of 
that you grew up with the original trilogy, or at least you've seen the original trilogy, and now they're going to put the pieces in. How did C-3PO end up with R2-D2? How did Obi-Wan Kenobi become Ben Kenobi and end up on Tatooine? Why does Luke and Leia, how are they siblings? And how is Darth Vader their father? A lot of the stuff is attempted to be explained. It's kind of sloppy. So the, the biggest thing that we should talk about is the fact that the storytelling, while there is an overarching story, and unlike some recent Star Wars movies, not naming any names, but that there were, there is an actual plan and that there was an actual plan to do an overarching story and that George Lucas did say to Mr. Christensen, We'll get to him in a minute. Um, that that there um, is a plan, and that a lot of his choices during one of the movies to go a little dark were pulled back. And he said, "We can't go that dark yet because you're not there yet, and there has to be more forward motion and movement." Um, which is very, which is actually very, very interesting at that point. So, while there is an overarching story, and that there is a plan and a plot and like a puzzle to be put together that doesn't mean the puzzle is a great puzzle you know yeah a lot of the pieces feel contrived um and that's a word i also use a lot for the rise of skywalker but for different reasons i can say as much as flawed as the prequels are as a trilogy i it seems the most coherent of the star wars trilogies because as far as theme and like you consistency with uh, within the trilogy, it does make sense. So you can tell like what kind of story is being told and what the overall takeaway is, what the themes are, what the message is supposed to be. Yeah, um, I, I, I'll disagree. I'll disagree with, you, disagree with you only a little bit in terms of the original trilogy, but we'll get to that and we'll we'll talk about that then. But um, I do agree that the storytelling is very sloppy. Sloppy the. Uh, decisions made within the script and the overarching story are incredible. Which, which one are you talking about? I'm talking about the, talking the, about the prequel. The I'm talking about the prequel. The prequel. Well, no, no, the, I don't think the storytelling, well, <laughs> so maybe I should explain. Go ahead. Like in, in relation to the originals, it is sloppy. Like a lot of the, they were trying to explain like, the, this is the connection here. This is the connection there. It's like that makes no sense. So first of all, let's 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 go into this. So, yeah, Phant- Phantom Menace. We're introduced to our two Jedi heroes that we're supposed to love, Qui Gon Jinn and um, Obi Wan Kenobi, and you know, uh, um, then we are introduced into this trade embargo, which is supposedly the whole reason why the Trade Federation are invading Naboo whatever you don't really follow any of this stuff and there's also the other thing that i want to talk about and we'll get into this a little bit later is also um stereotypes and caricatures mm-hmm. which are done incredibly sloppy in the in the in the prequel trilogy in this version uh specifically the fact that jar jar binks is basically matlin Morlin and any kind of other stereotypic african-american in the 30s and 40s and kind of it's almost, it's a little bit close to blackface. It, it's really disgusting. And then you've got the Trade Federation that are like, they're speaking in very kind of Asian types, 
manner and broken English kind of thing. And it, it's, some of it is just really like borderline racist and it's not great. Now I literally just rewatched the three of them. So all the stuff is fresh in my mind. So I can definitely speak to that. But anyway, they, um, the queen, they, the, the, the queen escapes and plans to go to uh, the Senate to try to figure things out. But their ship has come under, has been uh, kind of attacked. And so they have to find a way uh, to fix it. So they land on Tatooine. They land on Tatooine and they meet Anakin Skywalker, who, this is my, this is not only the other thing, this is the other thing I hate, who was not born of a mother and father, who was conceived by midichlorians and has a level of midichlorians higher than any Jedi that has ever existed. And basically in the original, in the, in the, prequel trilogy it is said that midichlorians are the things that bind the universe together and not and that allows them to use that the midichlorians created the force in the original movies new hope empire and return of the jedi the force is described as an energy field that binds the, the galaxy together that is absolutely a wonderful because what you're hearing is almost this is where we can get into a little bit of the spirituality and religiousness that they're talking about an energy field that can be harnessed through being able to be one with the force that's very spiritual but it also allows anyone who can be able to harness it to be able to harness it. It can be you, it can be me, it can be Joe Schmo down the street. In the prequel trilogy, it is assumed that not everyone can unless they have these midichlorians within themselves that gets measured. And it, if you have a high count, then you are recruited from a very young age, like very young child, to be part of the Jedi, which are actually a monastic order. It's exactly. just an order of knights, like you can be one when you grow up. It's a lifetime of service and it's a very rigid lifestyle. Yeah. yeah. It, so every week. Yeah. It, it annoys the hell out of me. Because <laughs> it's basically saying like, I mean, I heard an argument once, someone saying, but what are the tenets of the force to be good, to, um, uh, you know, uh, allow goodness to thrive in the world. And the retort to that is, if you're looking at the midichlorians is basically, I can't do that because my blood test tells me I don't have enough midichlorians to be able to do that. And in a certain way that it's a, that's an arbitrary thing to say, but at the same time, that's kind of what it said. It's Qui-Gon Jinn goes to his knees to explain, goes out of his way to explain something in a matter of Three, three minutes, and I timed it, three minutes it takes him to explain this to young Anakin, where in the original, Obi-Wan takes literally maybe under a minute to explain it is an energy field that binds the galaxy together. It throws within us, it binds us, it connects us. <laughs> what do you yeah. do? And they just changed a lot of like the setup for Anakin's home life and backstory, because we're introduced to him as a nine-year-old um, and his family situation seems completely different from what was implied in the originals because he 
doesn't have any siblings. Um, they have to introduce a stepbrother in the next movie uh, to make up for the fact that Luke is raised by his aunt and uncle. Uh, yeah, why can't, in the original one, he calls him Uncle Owen and Aunt Peru, but yeah. why can't those people just, that, that's just what they call, he calls them. Like, um, like I have people that I call, oh, Uncle so-and-so and Aunt so-and-so, they're not related to me. They're sure, just I close to my family, friends. and you know that too, yeah. So it's like, it, it's, it's, to me, it confuses the backstory and it creates a backstory, an arbitrary backstory that didn't need a backstory, which seems to be yeah. the tenant, tenant through all this. Yeah. Um, Making Anakin and his mother slaves is also like part of that. Like that was never an indication and doesn't actually play a large role. Oh yeah, he, he's a slave and then all of a sudden he's not. And then we have to care about the fact that his mother is not going with him and so this gets into a little bit and i had this later but let's talk about this now the acting in the prequel in the not just the first one in the entirety of the prequel trilogy is i hate to say it because you got some really good actors you've got ewan mcgregor you've got natalie portman you've got liam neeson all who and you got sam jackson all of them who have shown that they are brilliant brilliant actors and that they can rise to when the material fails but it's it's awful it's absolutely terrible i blame the like Script writing and directing like which are both George Lucas <laughs> yeah sorry Mr. Lucas like and like I can forgive you for the originals because I know you were he was under a lot of stress making those it was a very strange process but prequels like he had more wherewithal and more experience uh, he just can't write dialogue well here here's the other Here's the other thing too on the original trilogy. In the original trilogy, New Hope, Empire, and Jedi, yes, he wrote the first movie. He, he wrote and directed Star Wars. By the time he got to Empire Strikes Back, he had another writer. He um, wrote the script, but you had another writer who came in who had already proven himself. I'm talking about Lawrence Kasdan, who had already proven himself with Rays of the Lost Ark, The Big Chill, Body Heat, this guy is a brilliant, brilliant writer and knows how to write snappy dialogue. He threw that in. You had Irvin Kirshner directing, so you didn't have George Lucas's fingerprints all over the thing. You had his influence, but you were allowing other people to direct and put their stamp on it. Then in Return of the Jedi, yes, you have Lawrence cast again, but Lawrence had lived with the characters and knew what he was doing. And yes, you had Richard Mark Marquall, who... We'll talk about him when we get to it. But you had other people involved in this one. You didn't have that. He was, he, at this point, you have to remember George Lucas at this point, when he was doing the original Star Wars, he was this indie uh, director who had learned at the feet of Francis Ford Coppola. He was a maverick and he was a young kid. By the time he got to the prequel trilogy, he had built this empire with with Star Wars and had multi, multi millions, millions of dollars and millions of sound stages 
with green screen on them. So he felt he could do whatever he wanted and no one was telling him no. In fact, his co-producer, uh, uh, Rick McQuallan was basically saying, yes, 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 whatever you want, sir. Yes, sir. It doesn't work when you have yes people just constantly not being able to give you feedback and constructive criticism. Um, but he's directing these people in a terrible manner. Natalie Portman is stiff in the in Phantom Menace. He, she is absolutely stiff. There's no energy. There's no, and I feel so bad because we've seen her in great, great roles. Even so much as so that we've seen her in roles that the movies are terrible, but she's brilliant in them. You know, like the Jackie Onassis one that just came out not too long ago. She's brilliant in that movie. The movie is terrible, but it, she's a brilliant actress. Liam Neeson, the same thing. He's been in terrible movies, but he's really good in pretty much all of them. It just baffles my mind. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know if you if you have anything to add to to that. Not really. Um. My other criticism, at least of the first one, well, actually, The Phantom Menace is the one I think I like best in the, the prequel trilogy. Just, I can sit through it easily enough. Um, the other two are just very cringeworthy to me because their dialogue is even worse. And especially when I guess all romantic. George Lucas does not know how to write romance. Sorry. <laughs> but um, what, uh, one reason I think I found um, the, Fen the Phantom Menace a bit confusing is it almost feels like more of an ensemble piece than like uh, a movie with like one protagonist. It's actually hard to identify who, if any of these characters is the protagonist of that episode and of the whole trilogy, because I think Obi-Wan Kenobi is the only one who's there like from the start of the movie to the end of the movie and the start of the trilogy to the end of the trilogy. Um, we are introduced to uh, Qui-Gon as well in, and he seems to be like kind of the main player of most of Phantom Menace, but then he dies. Um, and we're introduced to Padme and Anakin, and we kind of see the hero's journey play out for each of them in different ways, because they are coming to their own. She as a politician, and he as a Jedi and military leader. But then Obi-Wan is the one who survives and like keeps the story going. Uh, and then I guess you could Count Palpatine. I mean, he's the antagonist, so he's there the whole time. He's, I have the point of consistency through the story. But yeah, it's hard to figure out, like, who are we actually, like, following? And it feels almost more of, like, a team effort in many ways, although they aren't exactly a cohesive team. These, yeah, four major characters. Uh, the two, yeah. Jay and Padme and Anakin. Yeah. The other thing that is irritating is that um, when I was watching Phantom Menace, I was reminded of terrible student films that I saw when I was in college. There's a lot of like decisions and like acting choices. There's one in particular that drives me up the wall. It's the point where we are seeing Anakin work on his, um, on his racer, his pod racer. And a bunch of kids come and 
they each have a line. It's like a terrible Christmas pageant kind of deal where it's like, mm-hmm. okay, I have to write a cute line for everyone. With this, oh, it's really funny, Anakin. You've been working on this for years. It's never going to run. Within five seconds, all of a sudden, it's running. <laughs> yeah, um, I noticed that's like the first scene in a Star Wars film that actually has a bunch of children. You don't really see children on screen in the originals, and mm-hmm. Anakin is the first character introduced as a child. Um, like Luke and Leia are in their late teens, I think, when their story really picks up. Uh, so yeah, maybe George Lucas just didn't have that much experience directing kids either, or like writing realistic dialogue for them. I don't think he does. Now, we- oh, Other ahead, thing, I just wanna say real quickly, my other pet peeve for the prequels is too much telling and not enough showing. Yes, I was just about to get to that. Go ahead, go ahead, take it. <laughs> you don't mind. Um, oh, go ahead, go ahead, take it. Yeah, just a lot of the dialogue is explaining things that we're supposed to accept about the uh, context that these characters are in, like the fact that the Jedi are really powerful as an institution, or at least they think they are, but they've become arrogant because of it. We don't see that so much as we hear Yoda telling his colleagues who would probably already be aware of that. Um, and like even scenes with like um, Shmi explaining the slave trade to Padme uh, that's told instead of shown. We actually don't see much that's bad about the slave trade. We're just told that it exists and they're not completely happy with it. Uh, but we don't see any retaliate or uh, even the occupation of Padme's home planet, Naboo, we're told the death toll is catastrophic. We don't see anything. Uh, it's not even like clear that there's like a state of war or anything like that. Um, all kinds of like things about character, uh, things about the societies, the, the whole conflict of good and evil. Too much is revealed through dialogue instead of through what we see and what the characters do. Like film is in particular is a medium that is about visuals and action. Uh, in a novel or like print media, you can get into a character's head or give like spare some paragraphs or even chapters for exposition about the world building and such. But for a story that's told in a visual medium like film, you really need to show more than tell. And you can have characters talk about something, but you should, I learned this in a playwriting class, you should assume that your audience is smart enough to figure out what is going on, even if it's not explicitly said. Um, You should be able to tell from the dialogue. Like, characters don't need to explain things to each other that they could already be aware of. Um, we need to see it demonstrated through their words and actions. It's um, you, in a screenwriting school, they tell you to not let the audience get ahead of you because it takes a lot of time for you to get them back. And you want to you want to be ahead of the audience, and that's what creates surprises. So you, as a writer, know the guy is going to come around the around the uh, 
the um, the corner, have a gun in his hand, and he's going to shoot the main character. You don't know that because they're just walking down the street and talking about something or other. Um, the best example that you're talking about, it's a great one, is in the movie A Few Good Men. Um, in the play version, and this is uh, the, the difference between mediums, uh, in the play version, um, our main character realizes that something's wrong by these tags. And he goes on this whole monologue about finding these tags and realizing these tags exist and all that kind of stuff. In the movie version, Tom Cruise goes into his closet, opens his closet, and he's got a ton of shirts. And all of a sudden you see a look in his eyes and you as an audience member remember that the guy that he was investigating, all of his stuff was not packed and they was all, and he was supposed to leave the next day. So it's a visual statement of literally being like, okay, audience, you're smart enough to realize what he's looking at and piece together where he's going next. And that allows the audience to be a part of it and to be able to be like, ah, I get it. Which is why in mystery movies, the audience is spending all their time trying to be like, who killed him? We don't know. Is it that guy? Is it that guy? Is it that guy? It, it keeps the audience involved, which is why you you um, show and not tell certain things that exist within this. Um, all good points. All absolutely good points, and I absolutely agree with you. Here's one other thing I wanted to ask you, because you're probably better at math than me. Uh. <laughs> You know my track record for math. How how old is Padme in this movie? Do you know offhand? In the Phantom Menace, she is fourteen. Okay, I thought she was older, which made the Anakin and Padme relationship way more creepier than I thought it could. It should no, be. there's there's only five years between them, which isn't terrible considering Han and Leia have ten years between them. Right, and um. My wife and I have six years between us, so there you go. Uh, now, the yeah, but I think maybe because they meet when they're so young, it's hard. Yeah, Anakin is craving a mother figure. Yes, and that just makes it uncomfortable because like Padme becomes like the main female in his life, but he's like still missing his mother and doesn't have like that. It's yeah, it's I'm not comfortable with their. <laughs> Well, also just the fact that the characters have no, the actors have no chemistry and uh, just. Anakin, de Anakin definitely has an Oedipus um, um, uh, um, complex. Syndrome, complex, thank you, syndrome complex. He definitely is Oedipus. And, um, I hadn't thought of that. I think about oh, more for Kylo Ren, actually, but. Oh, no. Uh, uh, he's totally oedipus like it's really creepy but it's well, now that i think about it <laughs> now, now the other thing i want to talk about is since we're on the subject of anakin skywalker i want to talk about jake lloyd this okay. poor kid this poor kid was thrown into this had no clue no clue and i don't blame the kid i really don't uh as child actors go He's not the worst I've seen. He's yeah. terrible. He's a terrible actor. Now, here's the funny thing. I don't know if it's in the most recent release, but in one of the DVD releases, they actually had, they showed the process of casting Anakin Skywalker the, as, a, as a kid. And I think I've seen that. And it was between Jake and this other kid. Now, me, um, 
seeing it the first time thought it was really cool years later when i became when i became a director i actually watched it again i said all right let me watch it with my director's glasses on and i'm watching it and i'm like why did Jake get picked? The other kid was so much better, had so much more chemistry with uh, even the woman that he was reading with. It wasn't Natalie Portman, but it was someone else. And then they showed the screen test. I'm like, the other kid was way better. He had more expression, more thing. The problem with Jake Lloyd is he's playing like a, t a modern 10 year old in the middle of this sci-fi movie. And it feels completely out of place and his decisions are terrible, like the one in particular is the very first one um, where Natalie Portman says something like, you're a slave, and he goes, I'm a person and my name is Anakin. And he makes this pouty face. I'm like, oh, oh, we're already starting to. So clearly George Lucas was like, we're gonna make them this kid pouty, angsty, and like, he kept saying wizard and yippee and, and really stupid stuff. Um, uh, and he doesn't come off as like what, An to me, what Anakin should be because the idea was always that Anakin was, to me, it was the idea of someone being really good and turning to the dark side because he's seduced by the dark side is how it's kind of described in the original, that he was a good man, he was a good kid, and he was seduced to the dark side, almost like, you know, a kid battling addiction kind of thing. But you throw down a, a whiny kid who's, you know, eh, I don't want to go, I want to go, mom, can I go? The whole mom, can I go? I just like was like, Go, go away. Oh my God. It just bothered me so much. I can't blame it on the kid. And I feel bad for Jake Lloyd because he's had a rough, rough adulthood because of that, because so many people hate him in this movie. And I, I hate to hate him, but he's terrible. I don't know if you agree with me. I don't know if you disagree with me, which is totally fine, but I, I, I don't. So again, I blame the, I blame the poor writing and direction. Like I could see how, well, actually I could see how those lines could work with just a different personality and delivery yeah. um but yeah the way he, many of the lines are delivered is so many of the characters are so like stiff but that makes sense for the jedi and for a queen uh anakin of all people is a nine-year-old boy and even if he's had a hard life he could still have some like youthful energy um but, right. like, i grew up with a little brother uh, he could have been just more engaging, maybe annoying in the way that kids sometimes are, but he could still have like a likable personality. Yeah. Um, and everyone seems to like him and think that he is great. And like his mother describes him as like a perfect child. <laughs> like he knows nothing to breed when he's actually working for a junk boss like owns them and is gambling all the time. So I don't quite see how that adds up. Maybe she's trying to shield him, but uh, not working. <laughs> yeah, no, the character choices and probably the directing, I think, played into why he doesn't come off as like a realistic behavior of a child. Yeah. And then you go to Hayden Christensen. Now I saw Hayden Christensen in Life as a House, and he is 
absolutely wonderful in that movie, playing again opposite uh, Kevin Klein. The movie again is a terrible movie. It has some good parts. It's actually one of my favorite movies, but there's parts in the middle that make absolutely no sense in this. It goes off on tangents, um, kind of like me. Um, but um, Hayden Christensen was wonderful in that movie, playing an angsty kid who's it's forced to basically um, watch his father die, but doesn't know it. And he plays it absolutely beautiful. So he can act and he has wonderful acting chops. He just was kind of thrown into this. And the one scene that everyone th goes to is, uh, I, I, for those who don't know, uh, or you don't know behind the scenes, when I saw Jackie in her um, Padme outfit, the first thing I said was, um, I don't like sand, it's coarse and rough and it gets everywhere. Um, but the scene that I point to as Hayden Christensen being a horrible actor or in this role is, um, when he explains to Padme that he killed sand people and then he killed the children and the women and all that kind of stuff. And he goes from being upset that he killed them to then yelling and saying, I hate them and throw like a piece of uh, metal elsewhere. And <sighs> That's another instance I think of showing instead of telling. Like he could have, we could have seen like a destructive action, like a him trying to vent his anger through, I don't know, destroying their homes or something like that, uh, instead of like articulating it all to Padme, who then just basically says, it's okay that you did that. <laughs> uh, like she's kind of an enabler for him, like at that point in there. Well, the other thing, the other thing too, is that we already saw that he killed sand people mm. and we already knew because yoda is uh communicating with the afterlife and we hear qui-gon jinn yelling anakin no anakin you know and he yoda says to sam jackson you know young skywalker is in terrible pain so we know all this but yet he we have this whole scene of him explaining to padme that he killed sand people and all this kind of stuff like we don't need this this is just over explaining things and trying to give them a scene so that they can justify um her falling in love with him which makes no sense whatsoever especially at the very beginning when he comes off as more of a creepy ex ex-boyfriend kind of thing like stalkery kind of oh, i've seen you in my dreams all the time and like it doesn't come off as cute it doesn't come off as romantic it comes off as creepy and a little molesty to from my ta my taste um kind of a reversal because she's the older one and has like political power but then he has force power so yeah they're never really equals in any sense they don't really understand each other and um uh, I was going to say, when I I rewatched the whole Star Wars saga leading up to the rise of Skywalker, like in the year or so before that, and I watched many of these movies with my brother, and he loves the prequels because he really likes the special effects and kind of those technical aspects. As we're watching Anakin's scenes with Padme, and like at one point she says to him, like, don't look at me like that. It makes me uncomfortable. I said to my brother, like, girl ever tells you that please listen to her and stop whatever it is you're doing that's making her uncomfortable like he's only 
almost 12 now, so not really interested in girls yet, but like, he's growing up watching these movies. I want to know, like, this is not an example of what romance actually is, or a healthy relationship is supposed to be. Like, later on, I'll explain to him about, like, how tragedy works in drama, but yeah, it's, I mean, some people ship them, uh, and I don't, I, I, I respect that, and I accept that it's part of the story, that the execution was poorly done. I absolutely agree. Um, one of the people who is trying, uh, not to say Natalie Portman isn't trying, but she kind of checked out by the time Attack of the Clones came through. Um, the only person I see who's actually, actually trying and trying to work this out is Ewan McGregor. And he's trying to do his best, like seeing what Alec Guinness did in the original and at least come up to a certain standard. And to me, he is really the only live action actor who gets close to what he's trying to achieve. I mean, he had a little bit more space with Phantom Menace because he was a young um, um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, but he has that like kind of glint in his eyes, especially my favorite, actually one of my favorite lines, probably one of my only favorite lines in the entire movie of Phantom Menace is when Qui-Gon Jinn and him escape the... Um, the, uh, the story, the, what well, the destroyers, and they are at the very beginning of the movie, and they're going to go down and warn Naboo. And Liam Neeson explains this, and Ewan McGregor says, "You were right about one thing, Master. The negotiations were short. It's the only funny line in the entire dang movie." But um, so he's trying, and he, I feel like he tried the entire way to make his performance at least somewhat close to what Alec Guinness was doing at the same time he cared so much about being in Star Wars and I felt so bad because he I understand what they were trying to do with him he's the authoritative after Qui-Gon Jinn he's trying to live up to Qui-Gon Jinn for Anakin Skywalker what he, what Qui-Gon Jinn was to him Anakin he wants Anakin Skywalker to be him but the minute he wants to be to Anakin yes thank you thank you said way better than I could. Um, but the minute Attack of the Clones begins, you don't get, to me, and it's probably, again, writing and direction, it's probably meant to be snarky and kind of poking fun, like, hey, we're best friends, but we're going to make fun of each other. And it doesn't come off that way. It comes off as uh, Anakin is arrogant. He actually hates the fact that he's stuck with um, Obi-Wan Kenobi because he probably wanted to stay with Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan is doing the best he can but is just exasperated with this kid um, and part of it is also the fact that Anakin knows that he's the chosen one like no one has disguised the fact that he's the chosen one which creates a level of arrogance which um, at the very beginning of before we started recording I was saying to Jackie that this that the, this the only good thing about this first prequel trilogy is that it does take from Hamlet and that uh, that Scottish and that Scottish play. Yeah, it does take. Oh, in, We're not in, in a theater. <laughs> well, I'm in the middle of production of a of a play, and I, I I'm just very wow. superstitious. But anyway, yeah, that Scottish play and um, um, Othello um, as well. A little bit of Othello. It's basically. The lead actor is told what his fate is from the very beginning. So it questions 
if you know what you're supposed to become, can you live up to what that's supposed to be? Or will your arrogance of I'm the great, you know, I'm the chosen one, is that going to cloud everything that like, okay, I'm supposed to be the one that saves everyone. So I should be able to do whatever I want because I'm so far ahead of everyone. I should, I should be a, a Jedi master. I should be the one who's, you know, this and that. And Anakin has nothing but arrogance and e ego during the entire thing. And that's what ultimately leads to his downfall because he feels like he has to go to the dark side to save Padme, which is another thing we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but it's, and so there isn't this kind of brotherly relationship that they spoke about and that they talked about in the original the original trilogy so it's just it seems way too antagonistic it way it doesn't seem like a mentor mentee kind of thing um to me it would have made more sense if anakin had um accepted obi-wan from the very beginning as his master and that he's going to follow it and follow it to the letter because again then it goes into the fact that oh he doesn't you know uh, like you were saying shmi says he doesn't know greed he certainly learned it because all he want all this kid wants is more power to be able to do whatever the hell he wants to do come the attack of the clones because he's doing crazy things and not listening to him and all that kind of stuff it's to me it's just completely the opposite of what it's supposed to be i don't know if you have an opinion on on their relationship at all um not a very deep one just if i recall correctly the way obi-wan talks about anakin in the original trilogy it sounds as though obi-wan may have had like many students and Anakin Skywalker just happened to be one of them yeah. and later was one that went bad um and it, they don't actually say that they were particularly close just they were they, they were both part of the Jedi order we don't know how big or small that was in its golden age but then you get we are introduced to the structure of the Jedi order in the prequels and it's very different from what it uh, was kind of loosely implied to be because there's a strict like master and padawan relationship there you can only have one at a time it sounds as though it's a long-term commitment like you will be training under one teacher pretty much one-on-one -on -one for they're together for 10 years uh, and then they are working together sort of as equals in the clone wars Anakin has like his graduation off screen, I guess, um, and is knighted. But um, yeah, that's also a relationship where it's a combination of a sibling dynamic and a parent-child dynamic. Because they, Anakin says at different times, like, Obi-Wan is the closest thing I have to a father. But then Obi-Wan says that they're like brothers. And it's also strange because, like, yeah, I guess Qui-Gon was a kind of father figure to both of them. So yeah, they could have had more of a brotherly relationship, but maybe, I mean, sometimes older siblings raise younger siblings. So it'd be that kind of dynamic, I guess. I mean, if you think about it back in the original trilogy, Obi-Wan says very distinctly, you will learn from Yoda, the master that taught me. There was no mention of Qui-Gon Right. No. Yeah, and then there's this whole chain because Qui-Gon was trained by Dooku, wasn't he? Yep. Um, and, and Dooku was trained by Mace Windu. Yoda. 
No, I think Mace Windu, and then Mace Windu was trained. Mace by Windu is younger than Dooku. Mm. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, was, Mace Windu just knows shit. <laughs> I don't like Mace no Windu. Stuff. Sorry. <laughs> well, I don't like. Um, him. I actually the don't. Other... Like him. No, hmm? I don't like Mace Windu either. He... Yeah. Um. Want to say one other thing? Uh. Oh. Um. I think Obi-Wan is trying a little too hard to be authoritative because he's relatively young to like become a knight and have a student of his own. And one thing I don't like is there's constant like batting of heads between each generation of master and student and it keeps seeming to repeat itself like you're too defiant, you're too rebellious against me and against the council. But then they are also encouraging that rebellious spirit. Um, we see also between Anakin and Ahsoka in the Clone Wars, which I actually give the Clone Wars cartoon credit for introducing that, that kind of dynamic where Anakin is the teacher instead of the student, even though it annoys me that like that's totally separate from the canon of the movies. Uh, so like we never see that, any evidence of that in the movies, but I thought it was an interesting choice to put Anakin in that role. Um, but then it is strange how it, there's this simultaneous, like, we have to do what the council says, but then also, like, let's just ignore what the council says. There's a really, there's a really funny, I, I, can, I can assume that you don't watch the show, but um, Robot Chicken did a whole thing about the prequel trilogy, and it's hysterical because there's a, the council meeting, so in the I think it's in the um, Phantom Menace. It might be in Attack of the Clones, but um, they're having a meeting saying something like, uh, inform the Senate, we must, of our lessened ability to use the force. And there's a, they're doing this meeting and all of a sudden this other Jedi, again, Robot Chicken is a comedy show, starts talking and says, who can't use the force? I can use the force. Let's put that to a vote because I don't believe, why is just you two deciding why you know so um the other thing i want to talk about too is since we were we were talking about mentor and mentee and this whole dichotomy of there's always two which is brought up in the end of phantom menace uh there's always two the um, master and apprentice apprentice we have that on the other side as well that we have multiple bad guys in the first one you've got you've got you know uh to a certain extent you have newt gunray in like the because newt gunray is in the entire mm -hmm. trilogy kind of thing until anakin takes them all out which is really funny um but you got darth maul you've got count dooku you've got uh general grievous who are who, who, out of nowhere Yes. We never mentioned this General Grievous, and he says, I was uh, trained by, in your Jedi arts by Count Dooku. He can't do any, any, he's a machine and he can't do anything. Like, all he does is put the lightsabers on and he just twists his hands and it makes it look really cool, but he can't, he doesn't use the Force ever. You know, if you knew how to use the force clearly in your machine, you would have done so, you would have just destroyed everyone and just said, you know, whatever. But anyway, you also, and then you also have Janko Fett in the middle, in the middle there, which that is such a weird, this whole clone war kind of thing that the stormtroopers were bred out of a clone 
clone army that a Jedi, who, by the way, we never solve that of this Jedi, why this Jedi, I mean, they kind of say. Tyrannus? Yeah, they kind of uh, say. He's Dooku. <laughs> oh, I, that I didn't get. Okay, there you go. Maybe they don't explicitly say it, but I think that's uh, why Obi-Wan ends up tracking Dooku, or he tracks with Jango Fett. He tracks Jango Fett to, to Dooku, that's in the attack. Yeah, the so, um, yeah, yeah the, I haven't watched that one. <laughs> A while and it gets very confusing and i'm still so confused about how much of it was planned and not planned on emperor palpatine's part yeah sidious yeah <laughs> but um yeah i was always bothered by the whole clone army and how like so okay in a new hope it's a throwaway line like you fought in the clone wars like, this, that's assumed to be, like, a long-ago war, and it inspires, like, a kind of awe. Yeah. It's like if we met, it, maybe for someone of our generation, it's like you fought in uh, World War II, or maybe more recently would be, like, Korean War or Vietnam. I, yeah, I was going to say Vietnam. Like, Iraq, it inspires yeah. some respect in yeah. the younger generation, and yeah. you want, you're interested, like, you have any interesting war stories. Um in the prequels, they decide to flesh out what the Clone Wars were. And it bothers me so much that they never question the ethics or morality of cloning, literally breeding people to be cannon fodder, basically. Like you're capturing, so. I guess it's meant to be a counterpart as against the droid army. At least like, I mean, droids, that's also a questionable thing. Like, we're, it's never clear if we're supposed to treat them as like characters with like a heart and a mind or if they're just machines. Um, and some, it seems to vary kind of depending on the uh, and characters involved. But. The YouTube um, channel Honest Trailers had the best example of this. Of they, were, they were doing like, uh, they were showing the image of the droid army fighting the, the clone army and basically said, these two armies are basically expendable. There are no stakes here. Don't get wrapped up in any of this. None of this makes none of this makes you cry or anything like, oh, it, you know, it, to a certain extent, it's almost like Ant-Man, the fact that he names one of the ants Anthony and then he dies later in a battle and you're supposed to care about the fact that this ant died. There's a million others. He gets caught up by a million others. So there's no, there's no stakes. There's nothing at stake. Um, and then you throw in Jango Fett, who is the father of Boba Fett. And Why did Boba Fett need a backstory like that? I don't, I mean, I guess he's like a sort of cool character, but I don't understand why, why people love him in, from the originals or loved him, I guess. You, you, don't, you don't need the backstory of the fact that he was the son of Jango Fett and that he was uninhibited he was the only clone that was like they cloned him but he was not given a rapid uh, uh maturity increase because yeah. he was to be this that makes no sense that's just ridiculous and also you brought up an interesting point in your notes which i want to bring in darth vader hires all these people he sees boba fett wouldn't anakin remember the fact that he that there was this guy who was trying to kill him but yet he like 
it's confusing and there's and there's like things you have to think about the fact that like they kind of knew each other at some point um and you also have to yeah you have to think about the fact that dark city has technically planned this whole thing out but there are things that happen within you know because he even gets surprised in phantom menace when um padme uh, plans to use the Gungan army and the Naboo to basically infiltrate and uh, capture the Viceroy, which does nothing. The fighting just continues. It just moves to a different location. And then um, and then he's got Count Dooku, and then he allows Anakin to kill Count Dooku, and then Grievous is running around there. This, the problem is there's way too many characters and there's way too much continuity for you to keep track of of within this first trilogy because George Lucas is like, we have to get to those points in New Hope. So, so 30, 30 years between them all, I have to make all these connect somehow. And the problem is when you do stuff like that, the storytelling kind of fails because you're never going to plug all the leaks in the the plumbing of this of this Star Wars thing, you really are not, um, and it's a shame because there were this there was so much potential for these, like you said, the Clone War is said in such a way that you like you care, but you don't care because the Clone War. I mean, I haven't seen the cartoon, so I can't say anything about if they made it even cooler in the cartoons or whatever. But in this version, they really didn't make it that awesome. <laughs> I have mixed feeling about the cartoon and I haven't seen the whole thing. Um, I, I've watched some episodes. I mainly liked it because I thought Ahsoka was an interesting character. Um, and there are some like recurring characters whose arcs I found interesting. And so I look up clips and episodes. But it also, it feels like it's trying to make up for a lot of trilogies' failures. Like, it's trying to make the characters cooler and more likable, and it's trying to humanize the clones and the Separatists, actually. We actually meet some Separatist characters who are not 100% uh, evil, and you get into more of the, like, questions of morals and ethics that aren't really addressed or wrestled with in the movies. Um, it makes it... It, get, it really gets into like the complexities of war, actually. It's a fairly sophisticated cartoon. Um, it's not just fun and kicks, it's, it's actual drama. And, and that, of course, it ends in tragedy. I think most of the clones actually are killed at the end of the war. Um, and it does underscore how sad that is, how tragic, um, and gets more into like the whole fall of the Jedi. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. It also bothers me very much that we see so little emotion at, in Revenge of the Sith when it comes to what Yoda and Obi-Wan, as far as we can see, are the only survivors of the Jedi purge. And they don't even shed a tear. Like, are they emotionally repressed by that point in their lives because of the lifestyle? Or, I don't know. The, the thing that also annoys me about the Jedi Purge, just really quickly, is how some of the Jedi <laughs> go down. These guys are supposed to be warriors, and you've seen them like take on like a million different 
clone people or whatever and you know take them down without a minute's without a second's notice all of a sudden like a handful of clone soldiers shoot them down and they can't do it because they're so oh my god the clones turned on me oh the one that really annoys me is the um the blue girl who doesn't even get her lightsaber out just goes out um i remember when i saw revenge of the sith in the um in the theater there was actually an audible laughter during that part and someone actually uh jumped up and said she didn't even pour her lightsaber for goodness sakes she went out like a punk um but um and yeah the whole that's another thing like the clones don't even have free will um they explain this more in the clone wars cartoon that like they actually had like chips in their minds and were programmed to follow order 66 like when they were given the command they it was they weren't in control of their own bodies they just turned their gun on the jedi except for a few who managed to get the chip out yeah um and one of my again one of my oh my god this really is in a star wars movie line and one that my wife and i say to each other all the time my favorite line in attack of clones Around the survivors, a perimeter creates. <laughs> when Yoda shows up with the clone, ar- clone army for the first time, and, um, again, Robot Chicken did a parody of that with the soldiers standing there going, okay, this is a battle where clear, precise communication is the difference between life and death. You are a thousand years old and can mimic our speech without much uh, 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 problem. Um, so in the future, uh, uh, you just got to tell me what you want and I'll say, yes, sir. Okay. That's, that's good. You've given me a lot to think about, <laughs> but I want to talk because we've been negative. We've been negative dancies this whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk. I want to talk about some fun things. <laughs> the pod race is actually pretty cool. The visual effects for me to the pod race are actually pretty cool. None of them are real. Like they didn't take miniature pods and race them around and all. It's all computer digi- digital, but it was pretty cool. In the attack I just wish of, it wasn't so long. That I agree with you. It, I, it, I watched it, it half, yeah. a few nights ago and like, how many times are they running the circuit? Like how much? Three times. <laughs> any twists and turns, literally and metaphorically, can you take on race? Yeah, um, the 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 you heard the duel of the fates at the very beginning. The fight between uh, uh, Obi Wan, Qui Gon Jinn, and Darth Maul is probably one of the most badass. Um, excuse my language. Um, uh, fights out there in probably because Darth Maul has a has a double lightsaber, and he's taken on two of them, and he goes so far as to kill Qui Gon Jinn. And it's so elaborate, but it's so cool, and it's exactly what you want. So I can't, I have to say that they did their job with that fight scene, because that's one of the best fight scenes in all of Star Wars. I was actually pretty impressed, like, watching them move on screen. And some shots of Obi-Wan and Darth Maul, I was like, wow, this isn't like a bunch of cuts. Like, they're actually moving and quite well. The other 
so in Attack of the Clones, the only good part to me is when all of a sudden I know where you think Obi-Wan, Anakin, and Padme are doomed. Count Dooku, you know, orders them to die. And all of a sudden, all the Jedi show up and it becomes this epic lightsaber battle between the Jedi, the monsters, the droid army. And that's actually pretty cool. That's, it goes on way too long. But it actually is pretty cool, especially when you slowly see Mace Windu uh, take out his his purple lightsaber. And and I don't know why he just doesn't kill Dooku right then and there. I mean, he had his moment and he could have just offed him and then we would have been home in an hour early. Um, but there are no other parts to me in Attack of the Clones that are like what's in Phantom Menace and what are in Revenge of the Sith. Attack of the Clones is the weakest of the three of them and that's saying a lot because these are terrible movies (laughs) um in revenge of the sith i like the big i like the first sequence when anakin and obi-wan are flying and they're trying to get to the to grievous's um ship that's pretty cool that's pretty cool um not big into space battles (laughs) (laughs) just it's flashing lights maybe it's my add maybe i just can't follow that kind of thing but it's like also just a lot of computer generated imagery. Like I don't like movies with a lot of over the top special effects mm. and just like really like trying too hard to be visually impressive. That was my problem, I think, with this trilogy when I first saw it. Mm. Um, and my problem with other movies like uh, the Hobbit trilogy and um, even the Marvel movies. I like the Marvel movies because when they have really good character arcs um but that's what i watch for i watch for the characters not for the action well it usually goes into a third act like cgi mess in wherever they happen to be and you know um but also in revenge of the sith i i do like the um um i do like like the fight not with dooku because that's really stupid um Grievous is kind of stupid too, but I I do I actually I have to say, Yoda in the fights is that that's actually pretty cool to see. Like I got really excited when Yoda showed up and fought Count Dooku, and the fighting style and like the moves are completely unrealistic because they're using CGI for honestly both of them. Um, but uh, um, but it was kind of cool that all that all of a sudden he shows up and he actually has a lightsaber knowing that later when we see Yoda in Empire Strikes Back and Jedi that he's older that he's literally just this Muppet and is more of like a mentor and not like an actual fighter um, and the scene of uh, of Obi-Wan and, and Yoda getting back into the Jedi Temple that was pretty awesome Yoda throwing the lightsaber and just having it go into a stormtrooper him jumping up taking the lightsaber and just offing a guy I mean that was pretty cool um, the fight with the Emperor and Yoda begins really cool it begins it's like a battle of wits and it's a battle of the dark side and the light side and it was really cool when they go into the Senate and Sidious is throwing the <laughs> the floating pads, yeah, the pods, at that's when it becomes really stupid. <laughs> and the fight, the last fight between Anakin and, and Obi-Wan is pretty cool until you get to the point where Obi-Wan says, 
It's over, Anakin. I have the high ground. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. The, the fact that they're floating on chunks of rock in a river of magma or lava, that's where it becomes like beyond my suspension of disbelief. Like, we don't need it. Have a good duel on solid ground. Like, I love. A Princess Bride duel. We talked about in our other episode. You don't need, I mean, well, on the other hand, I do appreciate that some of the environments in the Star Wars films actually, like, are symbolic or, like, relevant in some way for, like, theme or plot. Um, so maybe there is something to it. But... We didn't need, like, yeah. Also, Pirates of the Caribbean, that's another example. I don't like the because they're just so ridiculous in where and when they are fighting. Except for the very, the in the first movie, the very end with Barbosa and uh, Johnny Depp fighting each other, that actually is a pretty awesome sequence. But when, yeah, when you get into Dead Man's Chest or whatever it's called in Worlds and it just becomes overblown and absolutely just ridiculous for ridiculous sake. At the when you get to the red now, I will say Revenge of the Sith to me is the closest, closest, closest the prequel trilogy got to matching for me the quality of the original trilogy. For me, when I watch it just in my own, you know, when I'm not doing a podcast or having to rewatch it for those reasons i watch revenge of the sith into the original trilogy i just lob off phantom menace and um attack the clones that's not to say that at the end of revenge of the sith there are so many wtf moments she's lost the will to live (laughs) again robot chicken had a great commentary of like a character saying, she's lost the will to live. What was your degree in poetry? You sorry bunch of hippies. For God's sake, don't use the bunch of billions of dollars around our around us to make her feel better. Let's just get on our knees and pray. <laughs> and then the ultimate, and I want to hear your opinion on this because I have a big opinion on this. Darth Vader's last line when he is now the Darth Vader we know, and we know from the original trilogy, and he is told that he killed Padme. I, I, I couldn't have. She was alive. I felt it. No. I mean, God help me. <laughs> I don't understand why Vader continues in Palpatine's service at that point. Maybe because I, I don't understand what he's living for if he doesn't have Padme or his children. Like, she was the most important thing to him at that point. He was sacrificing everything else, including people's lives, for her. Um, and then he has to, like, live with the guilt and the fallout of his actions, which all came to naught because she died anyway. And now he has the self-blame, like, I, maybe Palpatine won't let him die. Like, I imagine he would probably be suicidal at that point. Um, but maybe Palpatine won't let him and, like, wants him to keep living in a machine and doing his work for him. I'm guessing he, like, manipulated him 
as he has all along. Uh, like, take your anger out on the galaxy now. That kind of But again, as an audience member, as an audience member, we know a little bit more. And I think the enjoyment would be that we obviously know because there's a there's a new hope what happens and what they know i don't i honestly don't think you need a dialogue at the very end of the movie he's darth vader and the last line can be his breathing that you just become aware of i don't think you yeah you needed to close up that loose end of um oh where's padme you know, I don't, at that point, I think he doesn't even give a shit anymore. Excuse me. I don't think he cares at all after, at that yeah. point. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that transformation sequence is actually pretty cool. Um, yes. It, it harkens to the Gothic influences, which is part of what I love about Star Wars. Um, it's a very Frankenstein moment. Uh, like, well, actually, Anakin and Padme are both like lying on tables. Um, he is, well, they're both dying in more ways than one, I guess. Like, there's a lot of symbolic uh, birth and death happening, as well as literal birth and death. Uh, and yeah, he is losing his humanity and becoming a monster with finality. Like, he's kind of progressively become a monster over the course of the story, um, especially that installment. But that just kind of like, finalizes it, or at least we're supposed to think as much Padme insists at the last minute that they're still good in him. But the thing, but the thing is, in the sequel, or in the original trilogy, Luke is the one who says, "I believe there's still good in him." I don't understand why he says that. He's never seen any evidence of it. Yeah, and not only that, but Padme says that to to Obi Wan. And Obi Wan right. is the one who says to Luke later that he's more machine now than man, twisted and malign, or whatever is and evil and all that stuff. So it doesn't, yeah, the way the way they wanted it to. They, I mean, basically, I know George Lucas did say that he was basically making sure that all the characters were in the places that they are supposed to be when New Hope begins, but it's sloppy. It's very sloppy. And we're supposed to believe that nothing changed over a 20-year period. Yeah. Obi-Wan just hides out and doesn't do anything. I mean, he watches over Luke, which is important because, like, this is a special child. He has to keep him safe, but he doesn't do anything to help the galaxy that just fell apart around him because of his order's institutional failure. Yeah. Yeah, there's... Um, and his personal failure. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot we also, of we don't see him wrestle at all with like the fact that he failed Anakin and kind of allowed him to become Vader. But yeah, because clearly gets an inspiration into no, because clearly, so yeah, uh, at the end, Obi Wan was sent to kill Anakin. He leaves him to die because he has no arms, no legs, and he thinks he's dead. But clearly he realizes he's not dead because now he knows about Darth Vader. There's a missing part in between the two when he realizes Darth Vader is Anakin Skywalker. Because if he's secluded on Tatooine, 
he doesn't know what's happening or doesn't or at least we're to assume that he doesn't know anything because he goes there when he's what 30 maybe almost 40 and we then see him again when he's in his 60s almost 70s like waiting to die kind of thing um, he aged pretty poorly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Huh. So, so there's 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 some in between stuff. I will say that the only like so there's a deleted scene out there of Revenge of the Sith, which I th- is the only one I would say should be back in. You see Yoda take the pod that he escaped in uh, uh, from the Wookiees, land on Dagobah, and you see him. The door is open and you just see him walk out and see his new surroundings and then cut to black. That was a powerful scene when I saw it in the deleted scenes. And I think that would that would have been amazing to see that. Even though, again, we don't need it for me, it would have just been a fan service kind of situation. But then we see Darth Vader and the Emperor watching the Death Star being put together. But now you have to remember, between Revenge of the Sith and um new hope 20 years go by 20 years go by it takes them 20 years. i think yeah yeah no i think i know what you're about to say like uh, they show them already starting work on the death star but then it takes them two decades to complete which i guess it is a big project so maybe that makes some sense but um not so much only because from oh. New Hope, from New Hope to when Return of the Jedi comes, years right. a three to five year period, and that one is almost fully operational. Yeah, this makes sense. On it already. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, like ends that don't quite make sense. Um, like Luke still has the Skywalker name. Uh, and Obi-Wan still has his name, although apparently he thought that he had to change his first name. Ben, yeah. Ben Went into hiding. Like, if you actually wanted to hide this kid from Vader and the Emperor, like, change both of your names. <laughs> the other thing, too, is in the original version, and we'll to talk about when, the, when we talk about the original, Uncle Ben... Uncle Ben, oh my God. Uncle Owen? Uncle Owen, yeah, I'm, I'm going into Spider-Man. Uncle Owen says to... Um, Luke, um, when he asked about this Ben Kenobi, he says, oh, he's a crazy old man. He died around the same time your father died. Mm-hmm. Owen has seen what that there are Jedi. Owen knows about what happened. So it's not like Owen is just telling stories or tales out of school and all that kind of stuff. And they like they make it seem like Owen and Baru don't remember or don't know what happened, but... Well, no, I think they make it seem like they didn't approve and they don't want Luke to get involved with it. Yeah, I guess. Um, like, Obi-Wan actually says, like, your uncle didn't approve of your father's ideals or like, that, that he, he, he didn't think he should get involved. We Which never makes... see that. We never see that. <laughs> yeah, no. Um... What was I gonna say? The 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 uh, uh-huh. uncle Uncle Owen and Anakin have one conversation, and it's basically where's my mother, and then Anakin just leaves and goes elsewhere. There's no conversation between the two of them about their ideals or whatever. Yeah, and also, um, well, I was gonna say you just quoted the line like uh, Ben, or no, not uh, Owen says that Obi Wan Kenobi died around the same time your father did 
well, in a sense, Anakin and Obi-Wan, those identities both symbolically or figuratively died. Because that's when Anakin became Darth Vader and Obi-Wan went into hiding as Ben Kenobi. So in a sense, they did both die on Mustafar. <laughs> to a certain point of view. <laughs> <laughs> no, for, for in a, a certain interpretive lens. No, I'm just quoting the movie from a I, certain point of view. <laughs> I know, <laughs> but that's not the way, I don't that's the best way of expressing what I'm trying to say. I understand. I just thought I wanted to throw it out there. But anyway, um, so overall, the prequel trilogy for me is not good. I hate this prequel trilogy. I really didn't want to talk about it, but it's part of Star Wars lore. It's part of the Skywalker saga. They took the most amazing villain that you that has ever existed in Darth Vader from the original trilogy and basically made it made him a whiny arrogant kid um grow up into this equally whiny <laughs> whiny character kind of thing so it kind of does undermine it to a certain extent but you know I guess for those of us who were waiting for the, this, these prequels um it did its job. We got some more Star Wars for a little bit. We got to see Anakin Skywalker and we got to see some of the moments that we were hoping for with a couple of terrible things thrown in. You'll notice we didn't talk about Jar Jar. I don't want to talk about Jar Jar. I don't. <laughs> we did touch on him briefly at the beginning, but... Yeah, he's, he's a... He's a, he's a uh, uh, I feel bad for him. <laughs> Because uh, well, I feel bad for both him and Padme because Palpatine just uses them in the Senate. And that's why I have a hard time rooting for them as characters. Padme, especially, like, it's hard to care about her successes when actually she's just playing into the villain's hand. Um, it's hard to, for me personally, it's hard for me to watch the characters think that they're making free choices, but they're really being manipulated and don't realize it until the very end. And most of them, well, no, I guess that's how a tragedy works. But for me, that makes it hard to root for them and to like them. To a certain extent, yeah. Um, all right, so we've kind of gone into a deep dive with the prequel trilogy. Um, was there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to touch on with the prequels or? Um, just this. Uh, I kind of want to touch on like how it compares to other stories. We've talked about how, well, we mentioned, but we didn't really go into uh, how it compares to Shakespearean tragedies. Um, like structurally and thematically, they're very similar. Mm -hmm. um, also, like uh, even ancient tragedies like Orpheus and Eurydice uh, and like Tales of Hubris and Tales of a husband trying to save his wife um, and you see like in folk tales and like fairy stories, examples of that where uh, it's a magical or enchanted spouse who is endangered by their human spouse. And uh, there's some kind of taboo that's broken that results in their separation. And then they, have, they may succeed or fail in reuniting. Um, and there's a lot of, Star Wars has a lot of uh, like, life and death, resurrection, and underworld uh, imagery in it. Um, 
so yeah, I, I'm interested in that kind of mythology and symbolism. Uh, and also we touched on like the, I call it the prophecy paradox. Um, what we see in uh, tragedies like Oedipus Rex and even in contemporary stories like Harry Potter, um, there may be a prophecy or a premonition, but some, depending on the story, well, often it's a question of, did this come true because it was fated or was it set in motion because people thought it was fated and so they acted accordingly? Um, like Anakin, he had the bad dreams about Padme dying and in trying to prevent that from happening, he ended up causing it to happen. That's basically the story of Macbeth and Oedipus as well, um, and Voldemort and Harry Potter. But I won't get into spoilers with that. Uh, so there's questions of fate versus free will. Um, and I want to say this, I think this is very important. Well, two things. Um, one, I credit the sequel trilogy with deepening my appreciation of the whole saga, including the prequels. Um, for a while, there was a sense of like, oh yeah, it's all connected and it's bringing out each other's themes. Um, but I will say this, the prequels could afford to be a tragedy because we knew that that wasn't the end of the overall story. Like the audience knew that a new hope would rise. Um, Obi-Wan actually says that in uh, Star Wars Rebels, which is another cartoon that takes place between the trilogies. Um, we see this message that Obi-Wan sent. Oh, well, Obi-Wan mentions sending a message to any surviving Jedi. We actually see that message in the cartoon um, because it turns out there are other Jedi and Force-sensitive people still alive. Um, but yeah, uh, like it could afford to end on a really sad note because we knew that that was rock bottom and things were going to go up from there. You can't end with tragedy in the later films. It doesn't work the same way because it's a different part of the story and we'll talk more about that uh, in the future, but I feel like that's important to say that like Phantom Menace is almost more of like a Shakespeare comedy, like it ends seemingly happily. Um, it's a victory and it ends in celebration. Uh, Re Revenge of the Sith could afford to have everyone either die or be disgraced because that was just kind of the beginning of the story in a larger sense. Yeah, I mean, we, if we want to talk about tragedy, I mean, most tragedies, it's the failure of a person and it's the downfall of a person, you know, Ham, Hamlet, that Scottish play, that, that's very, very specific. And it does end terribly for them. It ends badly for them. And you do, because you've been following them, you've seen their decline and, and destruction. Yeah, so a certain, if you take, if we're, okay. If we're talking about tragedy, you know, such a thing as, you know, that Scottish play, Hamlet, even Richard III to a certain extent is a tragedy. Um, Evita is a bit of a tragedy to a certain extent because um, she does become powerful, but then she, her hubris is what tears her down and she ends up dying at the very end. Um, 
But there's also something interesting about most tragedies that I know of is that the tragedy is of the main person that you're following, the, the, the downfall of the person, the decline. But there is a glimmer of hope that's thrown in to a certain extent, like the, that Scottish play, it doesn't end with that Scottish guy just dying and, that, and it's all been for naught. We have another character who, who stands in front and has a last monologue and it's basically saying, we just lived through this whole thing so that we could learn from this and we are going to continue on. Same thing with Richard III. Richard III does not have the last line. It's someone else who actually has the last line. Um, I think in Shakespeare, it's usually the person with the last line is the one who is the most powerful in by the end. Exactly. So you have those moments of like, yes, this person's life is tragic. They ended tragically, but there's something to be said that they didn't go through all this in vain. And that's the important thing to kind of think about as well. And I agree with you that they could have, they could afford to do it. But the idea also of a saga is that it should, and it's probably hard, but these movies to me should stand on their own, not just being antecedents to what they've been and, and set up the next thing, but they should rely on their own. Case in point, the new Batman series, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, and The Dark Knight Rises, to a certain extent, all live within themselves and tell their own insular story while being able to build on what happened in the last movie, referencing it, but not necessarily having it be in, uh, depend upon that. Um, the Marvel movies to a certain extent, to a certain extent have that because they're telling individual stories. So yes, you get like glimpses of what's coming up, but you're, te you're telling a whole story with the Guardians or Ant-Man or even with Black Widow coming up. Um, with this, you're completely dependent upon the fact that you know Anakin Skywalker is going to turn into Darth Vader by the end. And you know that there's going to be some hope, but in within the context of the movie, there really is no hope. Every everything everyone is kind of well. Twins are the hope by the end of Revenge of the Sith. Mm, I suppose. I suppose. I think that's the point that they, the children survived and are going to good families, and they might be able to grow up and do something better. I think that's the implication we're supposed to be left with when they show the binary sunset on the Lars homestead. I, the, the, see, the problem is I'm thinking about Revenge of the Sith entirely without knowing what happens in New Hope. And if I, the writer, am saying that there's going to be hope, that there's going to be like, maybe something will happen. The idea has always been, maybe it's me that I don't, I personally don't like endings in anything. I write anything I see. I don't like endings because to me, endings signify the end of something completely and life is not about endings you know things keep going you know happy ever after yes you know like princess bride ends very happily but there's probably stories after them of like them setting up a you know a, a castle or setting up a, a home and having kids but we don't see that because they're not dramatic so they don't lend themselves to another 
story that we can poke in. We're looking at these chapters in a person's life. So to me, the ending has to be something definitive, if or not definitive, but it has to influence something else. So yes, uh, Obi-Wan gives Luke to um, the Lars family, and they're looking at the sun, and they're setting down, but there's no real indication that like maybe this boy will grow up and be better than him because there's still this kind of concern on Obi-Wan's face as he leaves. He leaves him and he just kind of, you know, scratches his beard and then walks off. There's no real like kind of moment to me that kind of, the best example I can do, I think we talked about on my one-on-one is at the end of West Side Story, always um, um, the characters part ways and it's just Maria standing over the body of Tony. Everyone knows that it's the same. It's, you know. I thought she leaves first. Doesn't she leave and everyone else follows? Well, kind of, but they all kind of. My high school did West Side Story. But, okay. So, but um, basically the sharks and the jets leave. Yeah. And there's no like real, like Tony's death, all the people who died, Bernardo. um, Riff. Riff, thank you. They all died. And if you look at it to a certain extent, they all died in vain because there's still the riff. They're still not talking. They walk on opposite directions and Maria is left in her sorrow. When we did it in high school, the only thing I, this was the only time I ever, I've ever done this is I, as an actor, went up to the director and said, I feel like there should be some kind of affirmation that they, these people didn't die in vain. So we were asked how we're going to get Tony's body off. I said, well, why don't myself being the new, I was playing the next shark leader and the other kid who was playing the Jets leader, I said, why don't we stand across uh, above Tony's body, shake hands and then carry Tony's body off so that there's a legit moment where people can say they it's assumed that there will be no more fighting and things will at least be someone. So that there's an affirmation that these people have died. If there was something at the end of this that confirmed that maybe Luke will rise up and, and bring balance to the force, or maybe Leia will do it. There's nothing. They just go to separate homes and they just are in these perfect little sections of their, of their place. There's no, everyone's like left off in the middle of it. And I understand that they're setting up the next thing, but if you're looking at a story, it doesn't end very appetizingly to me. And that's just my opinion. That's just how I see it. Um, I don't know if any of what I said makes sense. <laughs> I love your direction. I write story. I think my high school may have done something similar, but I think in the movie, Maria does like, have a teaching moment with everyone when she says like they died not because of bullets but because of heat and that has to end and i think they do do something where they carry tony's body off together um but i think i well i've only seen the movie once and it was long ago but i got the impression that yeah that it's the end of romeo and juliet it's like capulet montague you guys need to wake up and stop all this violence Exactly. But, um, but yeah, so that's the prequel trilogy. That's, um, 
That's uh, Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. They are movies. They exist. And they set up, coming up, probably the greatest trilogy of movies that has ever existed. And I don't care. You can at me, but I will stand by that statement. Um, In fact, in the next, in part two, we will discuss how that is true. Um, But we are... Or debatable. Or debatable, we'll talk. Um, <laughs> this will this will be interesting because I know Jackie and I are very much, I think, on opposite. And I shouldn't say we have different views on on the original trilogy. The the most on many aspects of Star Wars. I think. The original, the real good discussion, I think, will come into the um, the uh, sequel trilogy because we both that was the one that we both technically grew, grew up with, you know, um, you know, it's only been the last five, six years that, that, that came yeah, out. Six from, years now. It came out in 2015. Six years. So we're more aware, uh, you know, we're, we're both a little bit more intelligent. We've gone through our, you know, young, <laughs> young phases and whatnot. And so we're able to, and obviously I think I, I would say at the time we we were both in kind of our professions. I was writing and I was still writing. in college. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, <laughs> but anyway, we have. You were uh, an adult. <laughs> I'm never an adult. I'm. That's that's, that's a that's. Not okay, a, that makes me feel a little better. <laughs> I don't do the adulting thing. Yes, I have a kid. Yes, I have a job. Yes, I have a family and a house. But oh, I'm not an adult. I'll never grow. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, that was the first trilogy. Please stay tuned. We're going to talk about the the original trilogy and the sequel trilogy it's going to be a lot of fun and i'm really excited to hear what jackie has to say especially this was the beginning we have much more to talk about so it's going to be a lot of fun um jackie i'm very happy to have you on here uh you'll be back obviously it's it's assumed um but jackie and i are going to go through this whole thing and it's going to be really exciting but jackie thank you so much for being part of part one at least um this is being released on May the 4th, which is very exciting. I finally am going to release something at the moment in time that I say it's going to be released, um, so, um, which is very exciting. Um, but Jackie, thank you so much for being here and spending your evening with me. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Uh, where can people find you for right now? Um, I have a website, JacquelineTatro.com, and I am on social media either as Jacqueline Tatro or Jackie Tatro. Um, both my given name and my nickname are spelled the same way as uh, Jacqueline Candy Onassis spelled hers, if that is helpful. That's actually really helpful. Um, and thank you so much. You can find me on you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, Matthew Garland. Um, if you have any suggestions about episodes or future lists that I should be doing, you can email me at matthew.garland at gmail.com. Um, we have um, a bunch of episodes in the past. We have a few episodes coming up. I will also announce with Jackie here that um, on May the 16th, May the 16th, it's a Sunday night at eight o'clock, um, myself, my production company, Sherwood Entertainment, uh, being sponsored by a couple of uh, friends, will be doing a, our first official trivia night 
for Disney movies. We are going to be doing a trivia, a Disney trivia uh, uh, night, which is very exciting. So if anyone is listening and wants to join, uh, there should be an event on Facebook. If not, you can, again, email me at matthew.garland at gmail.com. It'll be very exciting. Hopefully Jackie can be there, but it's going to be really um, fun. And it's going to be stump trivia with an actual prize. I will be giving out a prize for whoever wins that. So it'll be very exciting. Um, Check out the Movie Critics uh, web series. The first season is out for you to binge. Season two is in the process of being worked on. Hopefully I'll have an announcement for you for that soon. And also I'm going to plug plug uh, Disney, uh, Mass Mouse fans with my friend Chris Rose. I'm also going to plug our mutual friend and good friend Amelia Smith is in a brand new movie. That's right. You can actually purchase this movie on Amazon.com, on uh, uh Venmo on iTunes, the whole shebang. It's called Youth Men, a mockumentary. Uh, it's really funny. I actually watched it this morning and it's really funny and she's really good in it. Um, and everyone should watch it. Um, uh, not just because she's a friend of mine, but because it's actually a really funny movie. And me being a Catholic and gone through Bible camp, it is absolutely accurate. Um, but I want to thank everyone for listening and we're going to go out with a nice uh, Star Wars end theme. So thank you so much and have a wonderful, uh, wonderful evening. Continue taking care of all yourselves. Disney World, Disneyland, or Disney Cruise Line vacation, we suggest you reach out to Danielle Elliott at Marvelous Mouse Travels. Danielle is a long, uh, lifelong Disney enthusiast, a former Walt Disney World cast member, and a graduate of the College of Disney Knowledge. When you book with her, your booking includes 100% free concierge-level services, uh, some of which include customizing the perfect Disney vacation package for your, you and your family and your budget, uh, booking those difficult-to-secure fast passes and dining reservations, uh, providing tips and tricks to get out the most of your vacation, and more. Uh, Danielle also monitors Disney promotions to help you save money for those uh, Disney trip veterans still be in control of all the details. Danielle will take care of all your needs so you can have all the fun and truly say Akuna Matata throughout your time at Disney. Contact her for your free quote at danielle.elliot at marvelousmousetravels, one word, dot com, or by messenger, messen, messaging her on her Facebook page. <laughs>